This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Fundamentally, the story is about a murder that kick-started the communication revolution. And it involves someone who was a Quaker, and I can't think of another Quaker involved in a high-profile murder. There simply weren't those sort of people in their history. Sure, there might have been some very, very minor criminals, and they were probably people born into Quakerism who were there purely because of birthright, not because of any personal desire to become a Quaker. Right. But John Tor was the opposite. His desire was to become a Quaker, but he had this aspect of his personality. And it's one of the reasons why he's such a fascinating character. If he had just been your average crook, there would have been no story in it. This is the story of a man who essentially was unmasked by his mask. And that makes it fascinating in itself. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a crime historian and the author of the book, All That Is Wicked, and the audiobook, The Ghost Club. And this is our new season of Tenfold More Wicked. For this season, we're leaving New Orleans and the United States and heading over to England. This is the story of a man who used his religion to cloak his sinister side, and the two women in his life who both suffered because of it. It's also about a brand new machine that helped close a murder case. We call this season The Wolf Among Us. There you are. Hello. Hello, Betsy. Hi. Grandma's waiting at the other end, yes. and I said, you must be another exit. Thank you for picking us up. It's really kind of you. It's no trouble. No, we're not picking you up. We're just, we're walking everywhere. Oh, you're right. Thank you for guiding us through <laughs> this, this lovely walk. You could have been waiting there for half an hour. 
I've just arrived in Berkhamsted, England, a town about 30 miles northwest of London. A listener named Meg Edwards actually emailed me about this story from her own family history. And today, we're traveling together on the 8 a.m. train from Paddington Station. Meg has a step-grandmother named Hilary Fox, and Hilary is related to the man at the center of this story, John Tall, a Quaker, a pharmacist, and a killer. Hillary, her husband Gerald, and Meg all take me on a walking tour of Berkhamsted, the last place where John Tall lived. What do people do here? Is this retirement or? No, no, it's a very active village. It's, it's a town, but it's very villagey. You've not been here, then? What's the difference between a town and a village size? Town's got a church and a town hall. I didn't know that. Um, village generally just has a little church. Hamlet doesn't have a church. So it's based on the type of buildings the, the that me, are here? The amenities, yes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Not necessarily on population. Huh. John Tall was a man with two faces, a Jekyll and Hyde in a century when snake oil salesmen and corrupt politicians got away with so much. The train system made it very easy for someone to escape, and the lack of a national identification system helped criminals remain anonymous. This is the story of a killer who had a very difficult time remaining anonymous. And one of the most mysterious things about this case is why. Despite being in a country where crime was on the rise, the Quakers remained true to their tenants. Most Quakers did. They were respected and community-minded and private. What is the lineage between the two of you? Do you have you sorted that out? How are you related? Yes, uh, he was my great-great-grandfather. What have you been told about this story growing up? I don't remember being told anything. I think it was only... I don't remember discussing it with my parents at all. Hmm. Um, and it says somewhere how it was all kept under wraps for several generations, because it wouldn't have been something the Quakers were proud to be associated with. I'm sure that Hillary's right. Her family, who were Quakers, would not have wanted any of this to come out. Hillary's granddaughter, Meg, says that she didn't hear much about it either until recently. She didn't tell me about it. It was my mum who told me about it when I was a teenager. And it was very much a, oh, there might be someone in the family that you might want to look up, and then giving me the name. And we never spoke about it, ever. I think it was one of those things that kind of lived in the family a little bit, but unspoken, our side of the family at least. That's pretty typical for the stories that I cover. The families either know everything about the story, like the Witchers and the Clements from season five, or they know virtually nothing, like the family in season two about Burke and Hare. I think actually doing this podcast with you has been the first time that I've said his name or spoken about it to most family members. Hillary Fox and I talk about what it means to have a killer in the family, no matter how distant. What does it represent? Does it represent anything? Is it an um, odd story? I don't feel any blame for him and his murders because um, we are not in charge of our ancestors. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. 
By his early 30s in 1814, John Tall seemed to be a successful businessman, but he had a more humble start in life. Carol Baxter is an author based in Sydney, Australia, who's written a book about John Tall called The Peculiar Case of the Electric Constable. So he was born in a small parish in the county of Norfolk in 1783. He was brought up in that parish. His father was a shop owner and then he went to Yarmouth to work in a shop there. And Yarmouth was a seaside resort at that time. And that's when he was exposed to the Quakers. Tall was raised in a home with little means, so he was intrigued by the humble Quakers he encountered in Yarmouth. I asked Carol what he saw in the Quakers, why they were so attractive to him. We can understand that he saw in them a prestigious group of people who were very wealthy, and as he himself said, their garb controlled your behaviour. And perhaps at some point within himself, He realised he needed controlling, but he also knew he wanted money and prestige. John Tall worked hard to ingratiate himself to the Quakers. He was a person who was fascinated by the Quakers and their way of life. Like all religions, or most religions anyway, it was something that was a religion that was very handy to him. It was something that was, gave him a bit of an easier passage in life. I'm sure to an extent he very much believed in the Quaker beliefs. Let's talk about the Quaker beliefs because I knew very little about them before this story. The Quakers aren't referred to as a church, but as the Religious Society of Friends. Carol Baxter says this story really begins with them. To become a member of the Quakers, you have to prove your religiousness and prove your worth as a human being and prove that you believe the Quaker views and values. And the Quakers were a very religious, a very strict religious sect. They would not accept anybody. Were they seeking out people to join? Did they want to convert people? So they weren't evangelists by any means. They were, in fact, they were almost the opposite of evangelists because they didn't want people to join the Quakers. So it wasn't easy to be accepted. They had to jump over so many stepping stones that it was extremely difficult to do so. So we get the sense of John Tall having to prove a person that perhaps wasn't there at its heart. Just about everyone involved in this story has agreed that John Tall was an enigma, and he remains an enigma even to people in his own family. He was sneaky, deceitful, yet he also seemed to embrace Quakerism. John Tall was many things, but he certainly wasn't the archetype for a Quaker. I asked Hillary Fox about her theories on John Tall's faith. Was it real or was it an act? I'm interested also in why he was attracted specifically to the Quakers. Obviously, he had many options. Yes, it may have been because of his first job being, it says, for a Quakeress, and then in a draper's owned by Quakers, and then in the bank. He must have realised that that particular sect with their special clothes and they were uh, trusted sector people that he could go places and it suited him to adopt it. And perhaps they weren't suspicious, maybe they thought the best of people. I think they did it first. 
Carol Baxter says that John Tall initially seemed like he was a respectable Englishman. Initially, he was a a shopkeeper, except assistant shopkeeper, I guess. But one of his clients was a chemist and druggist in the old sense of the word that they supplied the pharmaceutical products. So he became a travelling salesman selling commercial products. Carol says that this seemed like a good career for him. Now, this was a very, very intelligent man who clearly had abilities beyond the norm in a sense that he had big ideas. He obviously had the background of a scientific knowledge, how much he acquired that in his limited schooling and how much through reading and general knowledge. But he clearly was a very fast learner. So he could see potential. So I think probably as a commercial traveller, he was successful in doing so because he could sell the products, because he could communicate their value through scientific knowledge. But on the other hand, we're talking about a world where he had aspirations for more and the income would have been very high. So I think we're probably looking at somebody with a family struggling financially. Now we're seeing a classic conflict in crime history. The person with little means who wants much, much more, but might not have the acumen or the opportunities to make more money. And soon we'll learn about John Tall's family, his wife and children. He'll make some important decisions about them shortly and they weren't the bad decisions you might be expecting in a crime story. As I said, John Tall was complicated. So now to his physical description. He was a slight man, very, very slender, not very tall, not overly handsome, but just handsome enough to attract women. No one ever used the word charming, but they used the word wonderful, kind, caring. So... He obviously had that side of him that he could go out of his way to help other people. And again, was that part of his nature or was that part of his mask? Could be both. It's a little bit hard to know, but I think probably there was a part of his nature that did do things for other people without necessarily getting a very clear benefit. But on the other hand, you can also see that the background of religion is a lot of goodness, is to benefit yourself in the long run. Hilary Fox, her husband Gerald, and their granddaughter Meg all took me to the Quaker house where John Tall and his family once went. That's beautiful. Erected 1818. It's a simple wooden home still used for Quaker meetings. This, this is typical of um, friends' meeting houses. Very basic. Well, this isn't very large. Uh, no, because it's only one story, isn't it? So. Yeah. Yeah. This is the old room. Yeah, they wouldn't really have much need for a bigger place. I asked them about the services. A meeting is the religious bit. They just called it meeting, going to meeting. And you just sit around in a circle. So I used to go with my father to the Luton one now and again. What was that meeting like? Very plain. 
and just the one main room, chairs all in a circle, and there'd be people that you knew that would always go because it was only quite a small community. They'd greet each other at the beginning and then go in. we'd go into the main room and all sit down and the silence would follow <laughs> about an hour and then we'd uh, all get up and they'd greet each other again and we'd all go home. So that was it, really. Couldn't be more simple. I don't think I could sit that long. For children, it's quite a, a discipline to learn, just to sit. Sit, sit there for an hour, not speak. Not. If anyone wants to say something, I remember my sister got up once and um, recited a poem, and she sat down again. <laughs> and that was the highlight of that morning. You know. People just go to have quiet time. And, and you can just sit in silence. They just no their own thoughts, and someone just stands up and says, wonder thought, sits down. Or not. So it's just yeah. a... It's almost like meditating. I it suppose, is like meditating. Yeah. Psychologically, it's beneficial because you have a um, group of people become cohesive and you feel that people are supporting you even though you're in silence. So it's, um, it's, it's got some validity, no question about it. I asked Hilary Fox about her relationship with Quakerism growing up. Dad was a very dedicated Quaker. His father married a Church of England woman. He went to both Quaker meetings and a little bit of church, I think, but not a great deal. He continued it on once he got married, although my mother was Church of England and I think wore the trousers in the religious side of things. But your dad really connected with Quakerism. Dad was really lived the Quaker ethics. He always had some poor dropout hanging about. He was helping or gave him a job on the farm. Or he always had that sort of leaning towards helping people who needed a bit of a leg up in life. And that's a very Quaker thing to do that. This seems like a good time to get a quick lesson on Quakerism in England. John Tall would really depend on the reputation of Quakers to shield him from punishment for some of his crimes. So it's important to understand why he would have been trusted based simply on the clothes that he wore. Esther Zala is a researcher at a university in Berlin who wrote a book called Quakers in the British Atlantic World. I asked her to shorthand the history of the Quakers. It's a big ask. Yeah, so I'll try and keep it really, really short. So Quakerism emerges in the north of England in the 1650s and kind of comes out of a very turbulent period of British history. You have the civil wars going on, uh, which go along with um, actually a completely toppling of the social, political and religious order of the time. The monarch is executed. Actually, the Reformation sets in full blown. So people, there's this sort of vacuum that takes place where people have the possibility of imagining new ways of how do we want to live? How do we want to order our society? And lots of new religious movements pop up to fill this vacuum. And the Quakers are one of them. So this new Christian group emerges. I wondered, were they connecting their ideas directly to the Protestant church? They are very much, we don't need the church, we don't need establishment, we don't need theologians, we don't need experts telling us how to believe and what faith is, we can do all of that ourselves. And they're not too keen on political authority either. Um, They have a large female leadership, actually, they have a lot of poor people joining, Um, they're very radical ideas. And initially they're very successful, they spread very quickly across England, um, Wales, Scotland, to continental Europe and to the Americas. Let's jump ahead. In 1660, the government started cracking down on dissenters, and the Quakers were heavily persecuted, and they realized that their radical stance wasn't helping them anymore. 
it was getting too dangerous. So they changed tack and they start signaling very strongly, we're peaceful people, we're very good subjects, we absolutely um, are fine with the king being there, etc. We'll pay our taxes, we're very good neighbors, etc. And they engage in a lot of PR work, you have to call it, and very successfully, actually. So the, the, the term Quaker is initially a slur, and it refers to them talking in tongues. So it's a, it's a term used to put them down, and they appropriate that. Right? Oh. They start calling themselves Quaker. They publish lots and lots and lots of pamphlets, which is the mass media, the social media almost of the day, always with a big heading of Quaker on the top. Yeah, this is us. So what would it have been like for a new member in the 1800s like John Tall? But it would usually be expected that, is that you attend meetings for worship regularly for quite a long period of time. Um, so people get to know you and people get the sense that, yeah, you're serious. Like, first of all, you're interested and then you're convinced. You actually do want to join the Quaker faith. You share these ideas and, and then you can apply for membership and then they investigate you. So they investigated him? Essentially, they interview you a few times. They will probably, that depends on the location, etc., probably talk to your neighbors, talk to other people, get an wow. idea of whether you have a good character, etc., etc. And once all that is done, there will be a report. And then they, like the people making the report, will make, give a rec- recommendation. Then you join. What do you think the Quakers are known for now? These days, I think they're mostly um, associated in people's mind with pacifism, and they've had um, about 200 years of activism. They've been well, very outspoken and um, well, activists for pacifism, against violence, against warfare particularly. Right? They actually have representatives at the United Nations lobbying for pieces. Uh, so a highly political um, organization. I asked Meg Edwards about famous Quakers that she had heard of from the 1800s, not expecting an answer, really. Who would know that? She did. The two big chocolate businesses of the time were both Quaker-owned. You said it was Cadbury chocolates, and what was the other one? Roundtrees. Never heard of Roundtree. I have to get you a packet. They're really yummy. And you've got John Cadbury, who was the founder of, of Cadbury's. He was a Quaker. It's such an interesting religion how there is a conflict there between piousness and, and then also making money. But I think that's something that runs through the whole religion, actually. John Cadbury refused to sit in a comfortable chair until he was in his 70s because it was seen as too luxurious. Simplicity was a Quaker tenant as well as generosity and honesty. John Tall didn't seem to want to live simply, and he would soon prove to be dishonest. But he did desire to be a Quaker, most likely for the reputation and connections that came with membership. And later in life, he would be generous. Complicated man. John Tall dreamed of becoming a fixture with the Quakers, and by 1807, he had begun attending a Quaker meeting in Devonshire House. And then he applied to enter the inner sanctum. That same year, he met a wonderful woman named Mary Freeman, who was 21 years old. Mary seemed lovely, and John seemed to really love her. But author Carol Baxter says that there were two big problems. The first was that Mary wasn't a Quaker. When John married her, he at that moment was a member, and she wasn't. Historian Esther Zala says that the Quakers had rules that were very strict. They didn't approve of a Quaker marrying a non-Quaker. So Quakers were, from the beginning, encouraged to marry within their church. This isn't enforced very 
very closely, very strictly. So some people will be disowned for marrying out and others won't. John's wife Mary dressed in the Quaker garb just as he did, but they were not official members. Apparently, when John was investigated for membership, the group found something or felt something they didn't like because no one in the group would vouch for John Tall. So the couple simply went to meetings. And once John married a non-Quaker, the result was quick. He almost instantly got expelled from them, and in a very embarrassing and humiliating way as well. That may seem excessively punitive, and Carol Baxter says it's because of this strictness that many people never bothered to go through the process of being accepted. You specifically had to apply to join the Quakers and then you had to prove yourself in so many ways. So I suspect for a lot of people it was, seriously, why bother? So what could you do if you weren't a member? You could go to the meetings and if you could attend most of the celebrations, you couldn't attend all of them. If you could have your children baptised, quote unquote, because they didn't perform baptisms, of course, and if you could be buried in a Quaker churchyard, did one really officially need that membership? And I suspect a lot of people just thought, no, and why bother putting yourself through the trauma and the potential humiliation of doing so? Potential public humiliation. John and Mary Tall must have felt terrible about being expelled from the Quakers. Carol says that John started his relationship with the Quakers with promise, He might not have been vouched for officially, but he became a regular at meetings. That wouldn't last too long because soon, John did start to do some things that the group wouldn't have approved of. Perhaps he had to cover up who he really was for a long time in order to be accepted by these people. And when he was accepted, it was as if the cover, the mask, started to slip and his behavior started to slip. So the first way that John Tall had crossed the line with the Quakers was by marrying a non-Quaker. But there was also a second way. John and Mary had apparently had an intimate relationship before they were married. He clearly had an affair with his wife before he married her. So he did two things wrong. He married somebody who wasn't a Quaker, and that was almost a sin above all others in the Quaker's eyes. And he had appears to have had sex with her beforehand. So a double whammy. So his mask slipped. So that mask slipping leading to that marriage led to him being expelled by the Quakers after everything he'd gone through to try and join the Quakers. Historian Esther Zala says that the Quakers were intolerant of inappropriate behavior. If they find that somebody's behavior, for instance, they're criminal or um, they have a child out of wedlock, whatever. If that attracts public attention, that's going to harm our reputation further. It's going to cause scandal. Okay. And these people are then disowned, as they call. Is that what it is? It's called disownment? It's called disownment, yeah. Uh, It's not actually an ostracism. It doesn't mean you're never allowed to come to Quaker Church anymore. It doesn't mean your friends don't talk to you anymore. I asked Esther, what was the point then if you weren't forbidden from meetings? But what it is, it's a public statement by the Quaker meeting saying, we disassociate ourselves from this person. They are not one of us because we are not like that. And that becomes really formative for the Society of Friends. Hilary Fox says that even though he had aspired to abide by the Society's teachings, John Tall lived a life that seemed to sway with the wind. It must have been very stressful for his family. 
I think they, he had a great job getting in. I think he got in and then when he married a non-Quaker, Mary Tall, I think he was out again. And so his whole life he seems to be going in and out of favor in a way. Right before their wedding, an overseer reported during a meeting at the Devonshire house that John Tall intended to marry a non-Quaker. The people in the house held a meeting and talked about the discovery. There wasn't much of a debate. The Quaker beliefs were clear. John Tall was soon expelled. He was distraught. He had built his identity around everything associated with the group. The meeting house, the friendships, the clothing, and he wasn't willing to let any of it go. He and Mary continued to go to meetings. They continued to wear the clothing. They had two sons, and they took both boys to the Quaker meeting house when they were old enough. Even though John tried to act like things were going well, his growing family definitely caused him concern. He had never been good at finances. Maybe it was because of his humble start. Maybe it's because he wanted a higher station in life, Either way, he was a poor money manager, and now he had a wife and two sons to care for. He needed funds, and quickly. In 1814, John made a terrible decision, either out of desperation or greed. He decided to begin to forge Bank of England money, the first in a series of really unfortunate choices. He decided to attempt to forge or counterfeit banknotes, and he had a couple of ways of doing it. I asked Carol to give me a primer on how to make counterfeit money. They could actually sort of cut up the notes. In those days, there were no government banks. Banks were privately owned and they produced their own banknotes. And they used the copper plate printing system. Which was a simple system. They didn't do much to make them sophisticated. And one of the reasons for this was we need to go back to the Napoleonic Wars. The British needed gold for the war effort. So they allowed banknotes to become lower and lower in size in a community where most of the people were illiterate anyway. And so they couldn't read a banknote. So they couldn't tell if it was a genuine banknote or a forgery. It just made heaven for any potential forgers out there. They could actually very easily forge the notes, either through the copper plate script or by just changing the notes they had. So John Tall begins counterfeiting banknotes, and what happens next? When he ultimately was caught, he had some of what they called the cut notes, but he had some notes that he was trying to upgrade into a large denomination. But what he also did was he went to a copper plate engraver and he had them forge one of the notes. He gave them a note on, of all things, a Quaker bank. So here's what happened. John Tall brought a Bank of England note from Uxbridge Bank to a local engraver. Tall told the engraver that he was one of the partners at the bank. The engraver nodded and then started to create a copper plate that was supposed to be an exact replica of that note. So talk about getting his own back. He gave them a note of a Quaker bank and asked them to produce an identical replica. John Tall stood near the printer as he worked. 
He carved into the copper, and even though it's a soft metal, it was a slow, meticulous process. He had to eye the note constantly because he had to engrave the image backward. And when Tor came back and they printed a note, because because they do the copper blade engraving backwards, basically. So the only way to see that if it's identical or not is to print a note. He covered the plate with ink and then the printing paper was placed on top of the plate. The printer used a large cylinder to roll over the plate, pushing the inked image onto the paper. John Tall examined the fake note next to the real Bank of England note from the Quaker Bank and shook his head. When they printed a note and he compared it with the real thing, he said, no, it's not identical. This is incredibly important. It has to be identical. You need to do it again. And the engraver was already a little bit suspicious. Why was the printer suspicious? She was thinking, why didn't they use, the Quaker Bank use their normal printers to produce the notes? And so he found the name of the agents on the note and he went to see them. And that's when they realised that they had no idea who this Mr. Smith, how unoriginal was that? How this, who this Mr. Smith was? The Smiths were partial owners of Uxbridge Bank in the 1820s, so this was a good cover. But when the agents didn't recognize Tall, they alerted the authorities. Soon, investigators came up with a plan. And they went and laid in wait for him at the engraver's shop the next time he was due to come to check out the note. So the police were hidden in the shop? When he came into the shop, announced essentially who he was and why he was there, they just leapt out and got him. So then they took him to the court, well, essentially the courthouse, and the Quakers came in to see who this man was who might have been usurping their identity in an attempt to counterfeit currency on their bank, and they found that the man wasn't usurping the identity of a Quaker. He was a Quaker, and he was a man they knew. Gosh, that must have been humiliating. So you can imagine how horrified they would have been because one of the things that horrified the Quakers later on was the connection between the word Quaker and murderer. And they were so utterly offended by it. One of the things we'll talk about this season is the idea of redemption and motivation. Was John Tall a man who became a Quaker because he believed in the religion's ideals and its belief system, even if he didn't adhere to it throughout his life? Or was he using Quakerism as a cloak, a shield to protect him from the law? We'll see. Meg Edwards says that her relative John Tall never expected to be caught, even in the beginning, for something as simple as forgery. And clearly, that thinking extended when he started to commit crimes that were far more serious. I really think at this stage in his life, when he committed the forgery, being caught was not on his mind. Like you said, clearly intelligent to be able to forge a Bank of England note. And by all accounts, he was absolutely devastated when he was found out or confronted about it. There were reports that John Tall was crying. There are accounts that he was crying and head in his hands and so I think it was probably quite a shameful thing and being caught probably caught him off guard quite a lot. I asked Meg about John's mindset. Did he really think he could avoid punishment? 
I do wonder though whether at the back of his mind when he was doing it there was the idea that if I do get caught I won't be hanged because I'm a Quaker and because this is a crime committed against the Quakers and they'll they'll save me. Angela Buckley is a crime historian and a blogger who has studied this case. She says that John Tall was scheming and manipulative just like other criminals throughout history who have become involved with powerful organizations. You know, you have to wonder whether he joined the Quakers just to add an air of respectability because there were lots of men, I've come across lots of other criminals like him who joined the Freemasons for this, you know, for those sort of purposes to give respectability whilst there was stuff going on, you know, nefarious things going on in their background. And there are still nefarious things to come with John Tall. Soon, two women would change the course of his life and his choices would almost destroy two families both of his families. John Tall had secrets, but eventually his life would become public. We know a little bit about him in terms of his biographical information, but a lot of it is... Well, a lot of it was from my research, obviously, just in terms of the dates and places and all of that. But because he was such a fascinating character, once the events went down in terms of the murder, if it was a murder and they soon established it was, once the events went down, the question was, who was this man? And so the whole of Britain was fascinated by this man. And the whole thing unfolded a bit like a a Charles Dickens serialisation. Did you notice that author Carol Baxter said, if it was a murder? That little note will be important later on. Things we know so far. John Tall was a Quaker, partially accepted, at least publicly, in meetings in the 1800s, and he was a forger. Tall was sneaky, but we've only seen the start of it. This is a true crime show, so he's likely a killer. And there are many twists and turns to this story, including one so infamous that we remember it nearly two centuries later. But for now, we're still in 1814, and John Tall has bigger problems than protecting his double life. The criminal and the devout Quaker. Criminal justice looked a little different in 19th century England than it does today. Forgery was a capital offense. If he were convicted, he would be executed. For some perspective, if you were to forge United States currency today, you would face up to 20 years in a federal prison and a hefty fine, but not the death penalty. Could Tall's brothers, the pacifist Quakers, save him from the gallows? Maybe a better question is, would they? On this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. She wasn't the gold digger type, fluttering her eyelashes. I think she was just a sweet person. So I just got the sense of her as being a genuinely nice, caring person who was the ideal person to act as a nurse. 
he was very concerned about his wife finding out about the affair. And it's that kind of um, fear of being discovered that you, you're kind of enjoying this illicit relationship. But then when, when it's threatened with exposure, you suddenly have to face the reality of it and what you could lose from it. Suddenly, Sarah had gone from being a pawn to being almost a queen. She had started to have a voice and she made that voice clear in her decision to ask him for money. And that was when she became a threat. If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available wherever you get your audiobooks. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my book, All That Is Wicked, which is a deep dive into the criminal mind. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.